0: Please turn me with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, Chapter 13. Mark 13. In this particular chapter, Jesus answers questions that his disciples asked while he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple we read there in verse 3 and these questions were asked in private after Jesus had made his remarkable and very unsettling statements in verse 2 and here's a review of what happened as they were leaving the temple grounds, Jesus said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And in response to this observation, Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, obviously, this statement was so disconcerting and upsetting to his disciples that it took the whole trip out of the temple grounds down through the Kidron Valley and then up to the top of the Mount of Olives to recover enough to finally ask Jesus their question. Really, it was three questions lumped together in one sentence. Mark records the first question in this Concoction, really. When will these things be? Which is exactly the same as what Mark records, as what Matthew records in his parallel account. The next question in Mark's account is more general. It's that way in Luke, too. Much more general question that Matthew's account actually explains as two specific questions. Mark records what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Matthew gives more specific information as to what the disciples were actually asking. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So putting all this information together from the parallel accounts... Jesus is asked by Peter and James and John and Andrew, first, when will these things be? Second, what will be the sign of your coming? And third, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, what was it that upset these disciples so much? Well, for one thing, Jesus had just finished Pronouncing judgments on the scribes and the Pharisees right before this. And then in Matthew's account, he also voices his lament over Jerusalem and tells all of them, Your house is left to you desolate because they would not recognize and acknowledge the Messiah, Him. He was in their midst. So how could it be possible that God would remove himself from the temple and that the temple would be utterly destroyed? If you're having trouble, any trouble at all following this, try to put yourself there as one of the disciples. And then you can can get a good sense of just how blown away they were by Jesus' statement and what he had just said. Of course, that was always the case when Jesus opened his his mouth. The disciples were kind of like most of us in that regard. Matthew records in chapter 23 of his gospel, the last thing Jesus said to the people of Jerusalem is really this, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's what the city was crying on the triumphal entry on Sunday of this very week. The bookend will be, and that's what he's going to try not to answer exactly specifically because we'll we'll see why, but he's giving them a sense that they don't understand this and he's going to try to help them. Here, Jesus gives them a glimpse of their desperate situation and that he will come again, but this is very blurry. He hasn't left yet. The next couple of days, they will see fulfillment of things he's been saying that they really didn't swallow as he was saying them earlier his death on the cross is still just a couple of days away and he's that's really unseen by these people so what what happens here we get a a very good sense of their frustration and the confusion that the disciples were feeling they'd heard jesus predict his own death earlier several times actually and didn't really have a clue what he meant And now he's predicting the temple's destruction, which would seem to them like what? The end of the world. And that's exactly the point. The disciples would naturally lump all these disastrous events together. It would be the end of their world, they thought. But they knew enough of Jesus' amazing teachings to know that they didn't really have all this right. And so they finally asked Jesus when they get to a private place on the Mount of Olives. As we saw last week, Jesus in verse 5 through 13 answers their third question first. What will be the sign of of the end of the age. Jesus is again rocking their boat here because he doesn't answer their questions in the order they asked. And if I ask for a show of hands, probably 90% of us would be going, yeah, what's, what's, what's with this? I want it in order so I can understand what's going on. But the way he does it will help them see that what's about ready to happen is in the context of what will be happening for the rest of the church age once he rises, all the way to when he comes back. And that's the point. He splits their their question up into three basic parts now. In other words, while the disciples lumped all of this together, Jesus has got to show them that these things were not necessarily going to happen together. The whole point of verses 5 through 13 that we looked at last week is that all these things that he lists right there in those verses will characterize history in general the whole time before he comes back. And we've got to get that before we go any farther. In other words, all these terrible calamities and tribulations will always be present to some degree. So all of these signs in and of themselves do not mean that Jesus will, what, immediately come back. Which should set you free from being addicted to whoever's chart just showed up last. That's very, very important. They will, these signs, these calamities, these tribulations will be characteristic of all of church history. Jesus, you see, is setting the disciples straight. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple will not be immediately followed by the end of the age. But can you understand how they thought, well, how could it not be? And Jesus helps us here. Everybody that has lived in the church age, and that includes us. When facing tribulation, Jesus tells them here in Mark's account in verse 5, not to be led astray. In verse 7, not to be alarmed. In verse 9, to be on your guard. In verse 11, not to be anxious. And in verse 13, to endure or persevere until the end. Now, there might be some present here this morning that didn't know that's what you signed up for. But Jesus makes this really clear count your blessings. Be grateful for the freedom. But don't expect it just to stay smooth sailing. Christians down through the ages have faced enormous travails and calamities. Well, let's take, do a quick overview then of what's left in this chapter. Next In Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 14, we get to our passage today, and Jesus gives a particular example of one of the most horrible calamities in history, which also happens to answer the disciples' first question, when will these things be? And what they're talking about is when the temple will be destroyed. When will the huge and magnificent stones of the temple be thrown down so that one stone is no more upon another? And then in verses 21 and 23 today, Jesus starts to merge the answer about that with their second question, starts to, doesn't, but he starts to merge it into the second question, which is what will be the sign of your coming. Because there's lots of misunderstanding here. So he's going to keep going back to that. And that is specifically answered then in verses 24 through 27 and will be part of our text next Sunday. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. Be reading from the English Standard Version. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God maybe seated so Jesus answers question number one when will these things be meaning the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem Later in verse 32, concerning his second coming, Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the son, but only the father. Everybody got that? No one knows. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. But in our passage today, that we just read, there was a warning sign of the immediate and specific calamity, the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And what's the warning sign in verse 14? But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now, four times in the Old Testament book of Daniel, this abomination that caused desolation is mentioned. Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12. This event already happened in the past. In 168 BC, when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple by erecting an altar to Zeus over the altar, a burnt offering, and then sacrificing a pig on it. 168 B.C., the worst possible insult to Judaism. It was a true abomination. But this was not the event Jesus is speaking of here, is it? Jesus says in verse 14, But when you see, and he's referring to something like it, that would happen before the fall of Jerusalem and serve as a warning for his followers to do what? Flee. D.A. Carson points out that the details in verses 14 through 20 are too limiting geographically and culturally to be primarily pointing to an event beyond what happened in 70 A.D., you understand what that means? If you look in the text, it says the hills of Judea. It's talking about people in the field. It mentions winter. Very specific. The primary focus of what Jesus says here is aimed at the men that he's speaking to. Remember, this is a private conversation with his disciples on the top of the Mount of Olives. And it's about the destruction of the temple in the very near future, complete with a warning to his followers to get out of there when they see this abomination. So Jesus is answering their first question that was sparked by the comment, of probably more than one disciple. Look at this great temple mount. Man, these are the most beautiful buildings on the face of the earth. There. And what they were saying was they're indestructible. God is here. We're his. Yay, us. And Jesus said, these huge stones that are almost they're half as big as this whole room, each one of them is going to be turned over. Not one will be left the way it was. And that threw him for such a loop. And now he answers their question this way. Why would the temple become desolate or deserted because of this abomination that would happen? Because the abomination would make it unclean. So the Jews would avoid it. It would be profaned. And if the people came there, they would also be profaned. So what did specifically happen before the temple's actual destruction in 70 A.D. that would qualify as the abomination of desolation? For those of you who never took or were asleep all during your world history class, here we go. This is a very brief account that will try to mention some details. This is most likely the approach of the Roman armies and their surrounding the city during the Jewish war. The, The personal flags of the Roman emperor and the army, those flags bore emblems of the legions the Roman legions, and images of the emperor. And they, and they were virtually worshipped by the soldiers. And these were erected in the temple area after the city was subdued. Got that picture? In Luke's parallel account in Luke 21, we read, now listen to this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what did Luke just do? He explained what the abomination of desolation is. In fact, Luke's surrounded by armies takes the place of abomination of desolation in Matthew and Mark. Josephus, in describing the destruction of Jerusalem, says that it was a time of distress unequaled in any previous destruction. Eusebius, the Christian historian, and a few other ancient writers say that the Christians fled Jerusalem prior to the fall and found refuge in the hill country of the northeast, in the Transjordan area. It just happened to be the same place where the Jews had hidden safely during the Maccabean Wars. Not that far in front of when Christ came. Is there a possibility of a double fulfillment of this event? Yeah. But let's get back to the specific. Now we come to verses 19 20. For in those days... There will be such tribulation has been not as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now many people see these two verses as being prob- problematic, and we talked last week about how this is the most debated passage probably in the whole New Testament for various reasons, but I hope the hermeneutic, what what we're doing is going through the answer to each question. I hope that helps because it's really the only way to, to do it credence. You understand what I'm saying? Instead of trying to fit whatever view you have or you think you have into the text, you start by, well, how did Jesus answer these questions? And then you've got kind of an outline that can really, really help. And that's being true to the word of God instead of the other way around. Why is this problematic? Because Jesus spoke of the tribulation to come as being so great that nothing has or will ever equal it past or future. Was that possible? So their argument is that a tribulation of this magnitude has not happened yet and can't refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. But folks, what that does is it diminishes or ignores the fact that Jesus' prophetic warning did refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus strongly warned people to flee from Jerusalem when they saw the abomination in the temple, which is exactly what happened in 70 A.D., The reason people were to flee the city was that the horrors to come upon Jerusalem in 70 AD were the worst that Jerusalem had ever experienced. It would be greater than the destruction of the temple in 583 B.C. It would be greater than the desolation in 163 B.C. at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes. This would be Israel's darkest hour. Desolation would fall on the city and the temple, and the people would be dispersed to the ends of the earth. That's one of the biggest questions in a world history class. At least people used to ask it. Well, the Roman Empire is pretty big, but all the Jews were in Israel. How come they're scattered? They got scattered all over the world. As we know from most kids in high school at least realize there were two world wars before they showed up and some of the things that happened. Well, this is the answer. This is the Jewish dispersion. This is when it started. Anyone who has ever read Josephus' description of the Roman siege of Jerusalem, and I bet you there's a handful, and I, I bet I know who a couple of you are, it's unbelievable if you've read the description of the roman siege of jerusalem from josephus including the great famine and the infant cannibalism cannot help but be moved by what we would call unspeakable horrors that the people endured while the Roman army crushed the revolt and burned the temple to the ground. In fact, once the temple burned accidentally and against Titus' orders, the soldiers were so eager to retrieve the gold which melted and had flowed into the cracks between the stones that they overturned those huge stones of the burned out buildings to retrieve the gold. And as Jesus had predicted, not one stone was left standing upon another. Yet Jesus continues to speak here, does he not? Not of the final judgment at the end of the age, but what does he speak about? of God's grace in restraining the evil forces which would fall on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Even as Israel would become desolate and the temple destroyed, God would shorten the days of judgment for the sake of his elect, a reference to Christians living in Jerusalem at the time of the city's destruction. Israel would be cut off, the Jews dispersed, but God would preserve his people even under the very worst of circumstances. Yet again, the possibility of a double fulfillment surfaces. Is this prophecy of the horrible tribulation limited to the destruction of Jerusalem in the events of just 70 A.D.? It is possible that these events pointed beyond historical fulfillment to the great tribulation to be faced by God's people during the apostasy which will come immediately before the end of the age as is so often true with prophecy. The destruction of Jerusalem would be unbelievably horrible, horrible, but it would still not be The end. Do you see how Jesus is teaching his disciples this? Which is why in verses 21 through 23, Jesus goes back to his original point about the end of the age from the first part of this chapter, and he summarizes it. And what do these these three verses say? We can state the meaning kind of this way. So if anyone says to you, Christ is here now, even then don't be taken in by it, for that one will not be the Christ. Nor will these or any other signs be actual signs of the end. How you'll know they're not? How will you know they're not? It's because the Son of Man will come suddenly, like lightning that is visible in an instant from east to west. And there will be no adequate warning signs of that decisive final coming. That's his point. Jesus' coming at the end of the age will not be an isolated, secret, or local event, but will be witnessed by the entire world. Do we realize that? Every eye will see him. So do you see what he's doing? This destruction is coming upon the temple. But he's already talked about the end of the age, that there'll be calamities all the way through it. And then he gives an example. The first big one is happening in like 40 years from now, less than 40 years. But it's going to keep going. This is not the end. Christians are going to be going through this stuff over and over and over and over and over. And that's important for all of us to know, is it not? But his actual coming, there's are signs, yeah, calamities, false this, false that. But when he comes back, it's sudden. So what do you think he's getting ready to say? You need to be faithful all the time from now till then. You need to be looking for me because you don't know when these travails, that may be the actual end of them, and I'm coming back. You be ready. You see what he's doing? He's got to say both things at once, and this is an incredible passage that shows us this necessity. Well, let's review again. Now, the reason why I'm doing this is because I have to, so... Here we go. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus answered the disciples' third question of what will be the sign of the end of the age. And he said that the whole time before he comes back will be characterized by many coming in his name, saying they're the Christ, leading many astray, wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, Earthquakes, famines, tribulations for Christians delivered over to the authorities, even by family members, hated, and even death. And then in verses 14 through 23, in case you're lost, that was today, Jesus answered the disciples' first question, When will these things be, the temple being destroyed? by saying that they will know Jerusalem's destruction has come when they see the abomination of desolation. And we have historical accounts from several sources, not just Christians even, who say exactly what he predicted happened, and his people mainly fled to survive. But that kind of tribulation probably does point to the final great tribulation. And I hope that we all realize that Jesus is answering these questions so that the main event, which is what? His coming will be explained last. Every drama teacher should appreciate this theater person. His coming. He's coming. He explains last. His coming should be the exclamation point for our sure and certain hope. And we need to keep praying and keep our eyes open. And we need to ask God to help us focus on Christ. Wanting to live faithfully through this age until he returns so he'll find his church faithful. I don't know about you, but I would rather know the truth of the reality of history than all the lies, propaganda, and just crazy idealism that has been over and over again in history, or the opposite, how many times has the church bought into the fact he's got to come now? In my lifetime, being born after World War II, when my father's generation thought it would happen twice already and should have, and people despaired and threw in the towel, and the real Christians showed up and stayed faithful, and the fakers just went, Well, this is not happening. He lied to us. How many times has that happened? A lot. Then why is it almost worse now with people predicting? Why? You know, there's some charlatans out there who want to keep putting the next best thing in front of you all the time to keep you coming. Is that how Jesus did it? He's our hope. He's telling his guys the truth. And he knows that in a couple of days he will die and they will be shattered. But he knows their faith is real. And he knows when he rises, they're sold out, and he wants his church to be that way down through the ages and not get our focus off over here or over here, or think that we can make the world become his kingdom. That has been a major end times flaw from. Day one, there's a big difference between working to love your neighbor and be a faithful citizen and to do everything you can for righteousness' sake and then thinking that you will usher him in if you do this, then it will all be set for him and he's coming back. No, folks, it's almost going to be exactly the opposite. Evil will be so bad. The cup is so overflowing that unless he comes back, man will destroy himself. Our sin is that gross. So our hope is in Christ. He is on his throne. He is reigning. He has a plan, and he is fulfilling it. And we just got another dose of it today. Next week, part three of the Olivet Discourse in Mark. But if we're going to focus on him, he has given us a very special way that he instituted, which we're getting ready to participate in, the Lord's Supper. Another way to to feed our spirits by using physical examples that point to the truth of who he is and why he came, and how our need for him was fulfilled in Christ. This meal is appointed for our souls. And if you have trouble with that, just remember Jesus saying things like, I am the bread of life. That should help. It points to who he is and what he's done. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, The cup of blessing that we bless, Now, listen to this. Is it not a participation, the word communion, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, communion, in the body of Christ? This is a reality that is hard to describe. But Jesus gave this to his church. and that's why on the second sunday usually every month we partake in communion now all i'm i'm reminding you of that because this meal should be prepared for and you still have time but we're supposed to examine ourselves and that means we're supposed to see if we really appreciate his forgiveness of our sin by his shed blood made possible by him living the perfect life that was demanded of us. In other words, his sacrifice was accepted by God. And this is a way to understand that better as we partake of the bread and drink the cup. Our souls are nourished here. But since we know every second Sunday, Make the most of the time beforehand to prepare your heart. Because if your heart is wandering, if you're entrenched in sin and you don't want to give it up, you shouldn't take this today if you're a Christian. You should get that straight first. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive it our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We run to the, Christ, to the cross often as believers. All of us. And we need it regularly to do this, to realize because we are quick to wander, but He is quick to restore because of His work that's finished. And that's what this is a picture of.